Wow. It's uh, December 5th, 2010, and um, our message this morning is called Rising and Fall. Rising and Fall. Well, Dustin likes the title. That's a start. <laughs> As we get going, I wanted to let you know that there is a rabbi. He was born about 100 years. Jewish history says 110 years before the birth of Jesus. And he lived at least 10 years after the birth of Jesus. So we're talking about a man that probably lived about 120 years. His name was Hallel. His teaching and his life overlapped that of Jesus. Hillel had an expression that he was famous for, an axiom, a statement that is associated with him in Jewish history. It says, My exaltation is my humiliation, and my humiliation is my exaltation. What a profound piece of wisdom. This is not something you would see on a bumper sticker today. This runs counter to the grain of the American spirit and indeed the flesh of all human beings. Who in here just gets excited about the possibility to be humiliated? Yeah, see, this is not something people line up for and say, thank you, sir, may I have another. Who in here somewhere inside you enjoys the chance to be Exalted though. Well, now if we're honest, nearly every room, every hand in the room ought to be in the air. Our desire inwardly is usually to be raised up, not beat down. And there is a message in the kingdom. And it's a message that makes sense of the whole world if you allow it to. Turn with me to Luke 14. In Luke 14, start with me around verse 7. <clears throat> when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. Hear this. This is an international cosmic law. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is so contrary to our normal human nature that when you read it, you may not even be able to immediately apply it. We live in a society and in a world that teaches if you want to get ahead, you have to fight for it. We're in a dog-eat-dog society. The kingdom teaches exactly the opposite principle. If you want to be exalted, do not fight for it. Do not strive for it. Instead, willingly take the lowest position 
and allow the mercy of the Father to move you where He chooses to move you. I have a dachshund and my son has a beagle. I also have a lawnmower and a weed eater. None of the four of those things is vastly different as they are. Have I ever consulted their opinion about anything that I asked them to do? I expect the weed eater to eat weeds. I expect the lawnmower to mow lawns. I expect the dachshund to come when I call it. And the beagle to lay down or sit when I tell it to sit. Do you know why? I'm the master of those things. I don't know whether they have secret ambitions. Perhaps the weed eater would like very much to be a lawnmower. And maybe the lawnmower is looking at my dachshund with a certain envy because of the rest that it gets. I know for certain that my beagle thinks it's a dachshund. <laughs> but isn't that silly? Isn't it kind of humorous? And yet people think that to achieve something for God, we need to set our eyes on a certain goal and fight and work and strive for it. The kingdom does not work that way. It has never worked that way. The world system works that way. How does one political opponent rise to victory? Is it by lowering himself? No. It's by throwing as much mud at the enemy as he can and get away with it. It's about bragging about himself as much as possible and hoping nobody knows that he's a liar. This is what is being pressed all around us. Romans 12 is an invitation to rebel against this, this system. It says, do not be conformed any longer. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to tell you, if you think you have this message down pat and you have no need to listen any further, you are deceived. This is so ingrained in us, we don't recognize it for what it is in our daily life. We're conscious of the fact that people understand we are their peers. They are not above us. We fight to make sure people understand we are their equals, even in the body of Christ rather than lovingly submitting to one another, letting every man be our teacher. The body of Christ is as rife with competition as the world is. In most churches, this is no more evident than what goes on on a worship stage. You want to have a good church split? Have some auditions. You know why there's usually a singular voice behind a pulpit in American churches? Because if there were two, there would soon be two churches. That's, what, that's just the truth. They were sent out two by two in the gospel, but we've decided that that kind of cooperative effort doesn't work. We need a singular superstar, a kind of superman. This is the world that has crept into the church. The Bible demands that when men are relating to men, we seek to humble ourselves. Turn to Luke 18. Because the Bible demands that when men are relating to God, we do the very same thing. Isn't it interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, Luke records the same phrase verbatim twice. Come on, if the teacher said it twice in school, it must have been important, correct? Right. Amen. He's writing in the Word of God for all time. And he found the need to repeat a teaching that Jesus gave. Why might that be? Maybe because it was difficult to receive. You know, nowhere in the Gospel of Luke do we see 
Luke, write down. There is a Trinity. Here is how it is defined. Here are the members of the Trinity. Here are how they relate to each other. Wars have been fought over this in church history, but we don't see that written in the book of Luke. Yet twice in the book of Luke, we find consecutive parables that have to do with humility and pride, rising and falling. It's amazing. Do you think that when Jesus returns, He will pat us on the back and say, congratulations, you tackled the most difficult issues of your day. Whether or not we should have bread or wine. Wine or grape juice. The length of men's shirts. Women's hair. I mean, you tackled the big ones, church. I kind of doubt it. Our king has taught us something. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. This is ignored. If it's preached about, it's ignored in our behavior. One of the reasons that we have such an uncorrectable society is nobody thinks anybody is qualified to correct them. The Bible says take the least in the church. The Spirit of God is in Him. He has suddenly become your teacher because your master, your superior is speaking through Him. Does that hurt you a little bit? No, because he's not talking about me. Let me assure you I'm speaking to you. <laughs> not just the person on your left or your right. You. If you want to take the time, I'll call your name so that we can be sure that you know I'm speaking to you. And I'm speaking to me. We have a difficult time learning because we think we have no need to be taught. We're a nation of kings rather than disciples. Disciples are not made in our nation anymore because nobody wants to be taught. Look at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. We wouldn't say that, would we? Because our theology is so right. Our doctrine is so clean and pristine and perfect. And our church attendance is good. We know better than to say we're confident of our own righteousness. But what if we said it this way? To those who were confident they were right. Oh, now could we fall in that category? We've learned, biblically speaking, that none of us is righteous. No, not one. And this is sunk right into our head. But how often do we fight simply to be right? And we're superior to everyone else that holds an opinion differing from ours. How ironic that the first church councils fought over these issues. They anathematized anyone that disagreed with them. Because that's certainly what Jesus would do, right? Anathematize means to rain a curse down upon someone. If you don't see this issue my way, you are damned. Could that be people who are confident in their own rightness? To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Jesus told this parable. By the way, when we say this, does a people group come to mind immediately? Oh, those bad Pharisees. Those Sadducees. Well, why don't we update it for you? Why don't we make these your church leaders? Yeah. <coughs> oh, why don't we make them you? Mm-hmm. You didn't sit across from a Thanksgiving table with anybody that you were sure you were more right than? You didn't have a very lively Thanksgiving like I did. <laughs> you don't get phone calls from somebody you'd rather not take. Maybe they're a little drunk or something, and you're just confident that you've got it together and they are so screwed up. 
sing that in church. You say it in your homes. The people that we have in mind for this parable are not the people that they had in mind. The religious leaders they had in mind were esteemed as the most righteous and pious among men. You know, when you say a word like Pope, to one man, you envision horns. To another man, you envision angels' wings. It depends on the audience you're speaking to. We need to realize that the audience we're speaking to envisioned their leaders as the most right among all men. In fact, their teaching constituted an oral law that is equal to the Word of God itself. That's pretty powerful authority. Kind of like if you raise church traditions to a level that were equal with the Scripture. If you can't read between those lines, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of this message. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This stark contrast to the audience would have produced something it doesn't produce in here. When I say one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, you see two of the same kind of people. Sinners. This is not how the original audience heard that. They would never have put these two words in the same sentence. This would be very much like I was sitting around talking to you. I say, hey, Cody, man, look. The Pope was hanging out with a pimp. And they were both praying. Oh, now we got a little chuckle. This would be that kind of statement. You'd be waiting for a punchline. Because surely such a righteous man would never be considered with such a wicked man. Jesus chose this as His subject matter to teach about exaltation and humiliation. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank You that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want to ask you, 2,000 years of teaching about this have robbed us of the understanding. Get out of your mind these titles. Just put, the man who thinks he's right, prays in a way that says, I know I'm right. And Lord, I want your blessing because I'm right. And another man stands and says, I'm not even worthy to talk to you, Lord, but if you would help me, I would receive it. Yeah. Which do you think gets God's blessing? Mm -hmm. See, as long as we put this guy in a demonized category of Pharisee, then it's not applicable to us. But it becomes very applicable if we simply make it about a man who was confident he was right about everything. I tell you that this man, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. A divine law. The way to get ahead is to fall behind. The way to fall behind is to fight to get ahead. If you want life, you give life away. If you want death, you fight to retain your life. These are paradoxes to the natural mind. And yet to some of you, in your spirit, situations ought to be coming to mind. Wow. 
should do that differently. I could have said that differently. Maybe I should look at this differently. And that's all well and fine. But if it doesn't produce something differently tomorrow, then all we've done is stimulate your intellect one more time. How long do you need to be in church before you're expected to live out the Word? How long do you need to have given away your life for the Gospel in profession, through communion, through an altar experience, through an experience where you cried out to the Lord and said, Save me, you are my Lord. How many days after that can you go by knowing that you haven't done it? My favorite moment in every counseling session. Now I'm going to tell you all of my secrets. I will only revisit a subject three times. I, I, after that, I won't do it anymore. So if we're talking, let's just for argument's sake, say about tithing. And I've shared it as a blessing. I've shared it as a testimony. And I've shared it as a biblical teaching. And I'm still hearing the word but. I just move on. You know why I move on? Because you're already right in your own eyes. You've already justified yourself against the Word of God. And I'm wasting my breath. The very gift that God gave me. A man with the Spirit. Powered by the Spirit. Living in the Spirit. His words are not being received as if they were God's. Because we're also right in our own eyes. Now maybe you're good in that area. But this applies to every area of our life. The ultimate and original sin is idolatry. And it is through the form of self-exaltation. I want to tell you Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Sin is a disgrace. These are familiar scriptures, so I want to share them with you quickly so that we can move on to something that is even more profound. Here comes Genesis 2.9. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Smack dab in the middle of God's creation for man and man's domicile, if you will, are two trees in a garden. Genesis 3.6 When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. For the very first time, two human beings have decided that they know better than God. Doesn't that upset you? You can answer me. Does it upset you? Yes. Does it upset you any less when you do it every day? What was the tree that she ate of? Knowledge of good and evil. When you decide that you know what is right for your life, are you any different than the Pharisee that stood and said, I thank you God that I'm not like other men. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Is this the attitude of the tax collector that went home justified? That said, Lord, I'm not even worthy to stand here. But if your power would fall upon me, if you'd have mercy on me. I want to ask you, how do you know if you're so confident that you're right? Where you need to change, where you need to learn, where you need to grow. How do you get taught? If you're so adamant about your rightness in an area, where's room for confirmation from the Holy Ghost? I love strong, confident people. I think you know my tastes gravitate towards that. 
The problem with strong, confident people, though, is they're often strongly confident about wrong things. <laughs> There's a preacher that I love very much from my hometown. Had a worldwide ministry. Probably seen more people saved than any other human being since, well, since the Bible was written. Television gave people the right to do that. Trans global navigation gave the people the opportunity to do that. And I love that he is dogmatically right about that. He tears prosperity gospel to pieces. He preaches the power of the cross. The problem is, is he's just as dogmatic about the things he's wrong about. If he only knew. And when I look at that, you know what I see? Me. I see you. We're so sure <coughs> that we've got it together in these areas. And then it's the other people with the problem. Year after year goes by, and everything's the same. Is it quiet in here because you're mad, or quiet in here because you're thinking? Thank you. Thank you. Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us. Do you hear the idolatry? How many gods are there, people? One. One. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But now the man has become like God. Two gods. Self-exaltation is the original form of idolatry. And what is the first kind of self-exaltation? When we know what God has said, but we decide we are going to do something different. This is idolatry. It's what all mankind was sentenced to death for. And it goes on in the church every day. It goes on every time you read a scripture and go, yeah, but... Well, when things get right, then I will. Really? Really? This is how God's kingdom works? You do whatever the heck you want to do. And when it all works out well for you, then you will do what God has said to do. Saints, we have to grow up. That life will never be blessed. may not even be saved. How long can you be disobedient to the one that you call Lord... Before He is not your Lord. It's kind of like that age-old question about the lollipop with the Tootsie Roll inside. How many licks does it take to get to the center? I don't know. And unlike that little owl, I don't want to find out. How long can I be disobedient before I am not His? I don't want to find out the answer to that question. James 4.17 says it this way. Anyone then who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, sins. Friends, I think the church is entirely too comfortable with the word sinner. I mean, I really... Well, we're just all old sinners. That makes me nervous as all get out. For two reasons. One is the Bible's called us to be more to that. And secondly, it's like they've diluted the term to not mean much because we're all just sinners. Think about what it says. We have all exalted ourselves above God. We all think we know better than God. We've elected to do our will rather than His will, and we deserve presently hell. Equals with the devil. Co-heirs of His inheritance. That's not a term I'm comfortable with. Well, we were all sinners. Yeah, the question is, are you still? This is what we're talking about. Are you in right standing? Because whatever He's made clear to you, you are doing. So what He just hasn't made it clear. Turn off your television. Quit listening to the Gospel of Oprah. 
Oh, but you don't understand, Eric. She's a spiritual woman. Her mama didn't know enough about the Bible to spell her name right. Where does she go to church? Who is her pastor? What is her marital situation? I'm not picking on Oprah Winfrey. I'm picking on you. How many hours a week do you invest in that versus the Word of God? Yeah. Don't you run out of here and say, my pastor doesn't like Oprah Winfrey. I like her fine. Dogs bark, sinners sin. I understand what's going on there. The better question is how long can you know God's Word, not do it, and then think it's okay? No, we don't think it's okay. This is why our shoulders are humped over. There's no smiles on our faces. We come into the house of God singing with joy in our hearts. You're trying to carry something into the house of God you were never meant to carry. You've got a dead guy sitting on your shoulders weighing down your head, covering your ears. Spewing poison into your mind. Praise God, it was another good service, Pastor. No. The service is a complete and utter failure. You know why? You walked out the same way you walked in. Oh, but wasn't the music good? Well, what's the purpose? We're not in the church life-changing ministries to remind us of the purpose. There was an interview on Fox News. I have to confess it spawned some of this thought. It's not the gospel according to Fox News. It's that you can find truth anywhere you are seeking truth. Yeah, where are you going to listen? In Chester County, Pennsylvania, there is a schism in the community. There is a group of people that call themselves non-theist. This is the new term du jour for atheist. Non, no, none, theist. God. There is no God. Apparently, there's a Christmas tree that is displayed on the Chester County, Pennsylvania courthouse lawn. So the non-theist offered, here's the quote, the city council a chance for city officials to display a model of tolerance, understanding, and compassion as an example to the world of a truly free and open society. Doesn't that sound good? You know what they were proposing? A second tree be placed in the middle of the lawn. You have any idea what the non-theists called their tree? The tree of knowledge. Isn't that interesting? Have you ever seen a better picture of idolatry in all of your life? I'm not making this stuff up, friends. It was on Fox News two days ago. The tree of knowledge. And yet, doesn't this really show the position mankind is still in? We have a tree of life that gives up the knowledge of good and evil and simply says, Lord, you direct my life. You're my Savior. Amen. You don't like Christmas? Forgive me for this one. But perhaps the Christmas tree in this sense, represents that tree of life. And standing next to it is still the same tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it has taken God out of the equation because the people already occupied the position. Are you mad at the atheist? You shouldn't be. Nope. They're atheist. Yeah. Do you do that same thing? Have you decided that you have a firm grasp on what is right and wrong? You know ultimately what is good and evil. 
and you decide for yourself what is good for you to do and when to do it, and what is evil for you, and when you should or shouldn't do it, if you decided those things. You may say, no, no, Pastor, I haven't. As many as are led by the Spirit of the sons of God, but apply your life practically to that statement. Have you already made all of the decisions about your religious life, and now it's just a matter of executing checks on the boxes? Mm. Are you waking up every day with a passion that says, Lord, I'm crucified with you daily. Show me any area of my life that will change. I desperately want to be like you, and I have a ways to go. Now instead we compartmentalize. I'm good with God because I believe Jesus is the Son of God and on the third day He was raised from the dead. Check in the box. USDA certified Christian. Don't obey the Word of God. Weren't baptized. Or were baptized but no change ever occurred in your life. Yeah. It was not the kind of public proclamation that the Bible meant it to be. Aren't financially responsible to the kingdom. Still Lord of all of your own decisions. Attend church to get something from it rather than to give something to it. A lost man asked me a question. He's a relative. So when I saw the size of the crowd, I wondered if you were in the free food business. <laughs> he meant it as a compliment. The only way to get people to show up for an event is if you give them something away free. <laughs> the church is supposed to be the group of people that go to give away, not to receive. That's what the church is supposed to be. How about this? Turn with me to Exodus 1. I tried to give you a very personal 9-10 foot view above the circumstances type description. Now we're going to back off this a little further because it's true of people that when a man humbles himself, he's exalted. When he exalts himself, God will humble him. That's true of people. It's also true of nations. A righteous nation will be exalted. A nation that dwells in sin is a disgrace. Listen to Exodus 1. Start with me in verse 6. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was... Filled with them. Does that remind you of any scripture you've ever read? It reminds Cass of a scripture. The rest of you, not so much. Y'all are awful quiet today. Why would that be? Are we not family now? We'll love each other now. We'll take our Bibles and go home. They've been given a command as the people of God in Genesis 1:28. Be fruitful. Multiply. Yeah. Go forth, subdue the earth. Yeah. Bring it into subjection to God's economy, His rule, His reign. You know, we have that same commission today. But let me ask you something. How do you go bringing somebody into subjection to something you are not subject to? So we have men claiming great deal of authority. God's to ourselves. And they've never tapped into God's authority. It shows because their lives are still not obedient in the smallest areas. But they demand your obedience. Kind of like the healing evangelist that says, all sickness is of the devil. I don't believe that. But he's wearing glasses. How does that work? 
Would you not be right to call such a man a hypocrite? But what about the man who stands up and commands that you call Jesus Lord? He hasn't told everything he has to follow. In fact, he's clinging to his pride and his reputation. He loves his parking spot up front. I had always in there because we've decided we know where it's from. Can anybody turn to the verse in the Bible that mentions the word senior pastor, executive pastor, <laughs> administrative pastor? Can you show me the governmental structure of the church that includes four boards of various kinds? Well, maybe we should go about this the other way. Anybody want to get out your phone book and point to the church that is a good example? a five-fold apostolic, prophetic, evangelistic, pastoral, and teaching government in the church. Anybody want to do that? Have we decided that we know better? Have we decided that our way is right? All of these books keep coming out. Oh, revolution in the church. A new way. Uh, not the old way. A uh, barbarian way. All of these kind of concepts. And yet the churches still look exactly like they looked 10 years ago. Yeah. You know what that shows me? Our level of education has outpaced our level of obedience. We're fine talking about these things. But the same men that write about reaching the whole world for the gospel don't leave their hometowns. Yeah. I'm not speaking about any author. I've not read any of those books I've just mentioned to you. It's just my observation of the body. And I'm not so interested in my observation of the people outside the room as the people inside the room. Have we pacified ourselves simply by hearing the word but failed to do what it says. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. The enemy knows that if you multiply, if you take the Word of God serious, you are too much for him. He knows this. Let's just be honest. He couldn't prevent one man, Paul, from turning Ephesus upside down. City riots. Book burnings. Paul shook that place from the heavenly realms on down. He couldn't stop one man from turning the whole course of human history. Jesus. He couldn't stop Him. Kill Him and He couldn't stop Him. What would happen if this church took God's Word as God's Word in every area of our lives? Is your Bible not as big as Paul's? It's bigger. You got maps and concordances. So, oh, well, the great men of God like Charles Finney, the great men of God like Phineas Dake, the great men of God like D.L. Moody. Is your Bible not as big as theirs? So, what is different? What's different? Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, if war breaks out, I want you to put your spiritual ear to the ground for a minute. If you don't hear hoofbeats, it's because it's been muffled by the sound of disobedience. What do you mean if war breaks out? Friends, the moment that the devil tried to enslave you, you were at war. You just didn't know it. If war breaks out. Maybe that's what's happened. 
We've got an affable relationship with the enemy. It's all genial, you know. I'll accept a certain level of your oppression as long as you allow me a certain level of liberty. Is this what Jesus came to set us free and be free indeed for? There is a war if war breaks out. I wish to God the devil didn't understand we were at war, but he does. It's the church that doesn't. If war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave this country. Isn't that the summation of the Christian marching orders? War has broken out. Broken out. It's already happened. We join against the enemy. And we leave the country of our spiritual heritage. Is that not our call? The problem is we've decided to eat the Passover lamb, camp in Egypt, and make nice with the Egyptians. We've decided to stand around and tell each other how good we all are and are convinced of our own rightness. Where is the heart that is broken? I stood before you Wednesday night and I couldn't tell you what I was thinking about. As a pastor now, I am so intimately intertwined with the lives of the people in this building and out of this building. And sometimes it's most painful for the ones that are no longer here. And I know there are people that have murdered their babies in our churches. There are people that have left their wives in our churches. There are people in our churches that have in God's name done horrible things. The devil is at war with the body of Christ. The body of Christ needs to be at war with Him. I'm not telling you this to hurt your feelings about things that have happened in your life. I hope sinner is a title you don't want to wear. I hope it breaks your heart like it does mine. I hadn't been able to sleep the last couple nights just because I was overwhelmed with the thought that the people that we're all sitting around, that we all love, and that we're so convinced of our rightness have done unimaginable horrific things. to God. America, I didn't come here to be beat down. Well, maybe you should. A man who will lower himself gets exalted. Maybe we haven't risen to the heights that Jesus called us to rise to because we have never allowed ourselves to see our lives for what they really were. Maybe really hard. Let's put it the way Brother Yoon did. His observation of American Christians was everybody was running in a race and none of them had started at the starting line. Mm-hmm. They were all exalted already. They were all heroes already. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, saints. How much of the word have you taken the black highlighter to? A couple told me here recently they had visited seven churches. In each church they walk up and ask the pastor, what do you believe? The pastor says, I believe in the word of God. That's getting a little uncomfortable because that's my responsibility. I said, Well, could you be a little more specific? Right here, this book, The Word of God. So they begin to ask him some questions. So, do you believe in what's saved? All I say? Absolutely. Can you show me that in the Word? Not at all. <laughs> do you believe in the moving of the gifts? No, that's passed away. Can you show me that in the Word? 
Look, uh, you might want to meet with somebody in one of those rooms back there, okay? Uh -huh. <laughs> See, we know how to say the right things. But is it showing up in our lives? I feel questions about the doctrine in this church because I have not spelled it out for you through the six, seven hundred messages we have online. <laughs> Please come ask me. If I duck your question, spit on me. I will not. And if I don't know, I will tell you. And if you think I have presumed something that's not in the Word, I would rather die right now in front of you publicly than mishandle this Word. Let me ask you, is your commitment to the Word any less than that? Just because you sit out in that seat and you're not standing behind this wooden box preaching to other people, do you have less of a responsibility to say, if some area of my life is not measuring up to the Word, I would rather be struck dead now? Let me ask you, if we join hands this moment, would you be comfortable praying that prayer? Or would you want to go back to the altar and spend some time there first? Because we just had a worship service and a communion. Wow, that hurts a little bit. Check this out. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Hear this. Oppression equals multiplication. How could that possibly be true? Because it's the same God who says when you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. When you take the lowest seat, I will cause you to advance. His math is off. He reads a minus as a plus. He does. The only way it could be true that the church advances under persecution is if it is also true that humility allows for exaltation. Right. How many people would attend some of the most beautiful churches in our country if they were ugly shacks in the middle of the woods? I know I'm called to this one. Yes, will your calling change if the amenities change? What if you pull the coffee house out of the lobby? What if your pastor's a fat guy? What if his wife is hideous to look at? Does that make a difference? If it doesn't make a difference, then why do so many churches have marketing programs to show you how pretty their people are? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <coughs> Friends, we need to be careful. Is a man any less godly because you think he's unsightly? Is a woman any less godly, any better of a pastor's wife because she doesn't look like a Barbie doll? Then why do all of the pastors and the wives lately look like Ken and Barbie? <laughs> do we repaint Jesus' image? Do we just kind of remold it to something that we find more aesthetically appealing? Is he too Jewish? Is he not tall enough? Have you ever seen a picture of Jesus that included teeth that were not perfectly white? Because I don't think there was a person that lived in the first century that had perfect teeth. And the picture standing next to Jesus, the picture that smelled of roses, because there was no deodorant in the first century. Those interesting questions. 
The only way that oppression can produce multiplication is if humility produces exaltation. They made their lives bitter with hard labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. I don't know whether you enjoy linguistics the way that I do. I would encourage you not to look into that phrase. It might hurt you. Used them. Is there anybody in here would like to volunteer for that? To be used ruthlessly. Even those words in English are almost an offense to my ears. But this is exactly what the devil wants to do to us. He wants to use us ruthlessly. And if one decision to exalt our knowledge above God's cause death for the whole human race, what do you think 15 or 20 decisions are doing in our lives to ignore the Word of God? <coughs> the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Later they decided to throw all the babies in the night. <laughs> what could cause a monarch to be so bold as to think that you could get women to kill their own children? What could cause that kind of narcissism to think that he could have the audacity to suggest such a thing and it would be complied with. I mean, who in their right mind would kill their own children? Good thing this is an ancient problem, isn't it? Good thing this is back in less enlightened times. Good thing this is before we could put a tree of knowledge on our courthouse law. that goes on in our nation yearly has never gone on in the history of the world at any time. There are numbers that exceed the Holocaust happening all around us all of the time. And it's socially acceptable. How is that possible? We're so right. How is that possible? What would you have me do, Eric? Would you have me get arrested? I'd have you lose your life. Have you do anything that the king would <coughs> lead you to do? Well, it's just not, you know. You're right. He wants his body to sleep. I'm not here pleading a cause. I didn't come to talk to you about abortion. I feel about it like I do baptism. <coughs> like I do communion. Like I do tithing. Like I do baptism in the Holy Ghost. Like I do all of the gifts of the Spirit. Or do I have to? Is that what all this is about? No, obedience to the Word 
is 100% essential. There are no exceptions. So, well, can I do this and still be safe? Can I not do that and still be safe? I think Peter would look at you and say, may that wicked thought perish with you. That's honest to God what I think an apostle would say. Where are our apostles? Where are the prophets? Maybe this is why we only have pastors in the American church. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. The Bible encourages rebellion against this world system. Do not do what they do. Do not be conformed. You know, most of my Christian walk has been speaking with other Christians about coming into conformity with what the Word actually teaches instead of what the church system has taught them is right. My ministry has largely been to people who already agreed Jesus was Lord, but their lives showed they had a disregard for His Word. Sometimes they're already ordained. Many times they already hold positions in churches. Some of the times they're even paid by those churches. But we are so right in our own eyes. Nobody needs to be taught we're all equals. Then why would you ever have another new church? We've already got all that we need. If everything's right, why plant a church anywhere? Before an atrocity can occur, something truly horrific, the enemy must first elevate himself while at the same time denigrate another. Exaltation always occurs simultaneously with denigration of someone else. In other words, to make yourself look better, you need to make someone else look, not a word, better. Paul Pitt gives me that right. <laughs> the contrast of sex, self-exaltation and simultaneous dehumanization of rivals allows for the justification of history's most unimaginable moments. Genesis 46.34 says that shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. It was ancient class warfare. The Egyptians saw themselves as superior to the Hebrews from day one. They were confident they were right. Why did they know they were right? They had a leader called the Pharaoh who considered himself a father to the people. I wonder how you translate that in Latin. Father to the people. By the way, these Pharaohs, they didn't have to look far for their spouses. They didn't have to go on a search campaign. No. They didn't have to send out mom or dad. For a Pharaoh to get married, all they had to do was find a sister. You know why? You know why Pharaohs married their sisters? Because their race was so pure, they didn't want to dilute it. Because only divinity. Good married, but the Hebrews, when they came to settle in Egypt, 
They were sent to the land of Goshen because it was detestable. Where people who kept livestock were, not the divine Egyptians. <coughs> Maybe this is why the Egyptians had no problem ordering the death of the Hebrew children. They didn't see them in the same light. As we move forward, I want to share to you about the gods of history so that you might better understand history's God. Every major world empire seemed to exalt a class of people as having divine attributes based on their strength, by virtue of their genetics, by virtue of their aptitudes. Secondly, nearly every recorded major world empire inevitably targeted one group of people to dehumanize. They exalted themselves and denigrated someone else. Usually, it was the Semitic people groups that were denigrated. Usually, the person being exalted was an obvious, worldly, non-godly, dictator-like figure. There's a guy named Pharaoh, Tutan Moses III. He comes from the 15th century B.C. When he mounted his golden throne, he had a royal edict proclaimed. The God of heaven is my father. I am his son. He has begotten me and he has made me to sit on his throne while I was just a fledgling. You hear Satan's desire is to allow men to exalt themselves into the heavens. And the men that were chosen by God Himself to be exalted become the target. Does it surprise you that in the 15th century B.C., a time of slavery for Israelites, that this was going on in the Egyptian circles? The world wants to exalt everything that's wicked. It wants to minimize everything that's righteous. You participate in that system when you decide that parts of the word apply to you and parts don't. You participate in that system anytime you exalt your knowledge above God's word or leading of His Spirit. When He appeared in something called the Epiphany Window, much like a balcony of His palace, the people were instructed to hail Him as Pharaoh, Father of Egypt, God of the living, and His people bowed down to Him in worship. Isn't that powerful imagery? Alexander the Great was welcomed by Egyptian priests in 331 as the son and emissary of Amon, the God of heaven. Alexander promptly named that city after himself, Alexandria, because he was the son of the Egyptian God, Amon. Julius Caesar was deified in 42 B.C. It's two years after he died. This was based on a sign in the heavens, the sighting of a comet the day that he died. He was said to have ascended to heaven as a god. Cleopatra was a female ruler in Egypt. It's very interesting to study the female deities in history, and there have been many. That very first Egyptian, Tutankhamen III, had a female deity right alongside him. Cleopatra was in the century prior to Jesus' arrival. 
She married two of her brothers, one of whom was 11 years old. You've got to keep it divine, you know. She cohabitated with Pompey. But when it looked as if Pompey was going to lose his struggle with Julius Caesar, she quite literally changed horses and cohabitated with Caesar. She produced a son with him. Any of you ladies with a special squirrel like this one? His name was Caesarian. Of course, when Caesar was killed by Brutus, she found it convenient to find her way into Antony's bed. And when Antony was out fighting with Augustus, she approached Augustus. The problem with Augustus, though, is Augustus didn't like the idea that there was Caesarian. Caesarian was the son of Julius Caesar who was a god. And Augustus thought he was a god. It seems that no god wants a rival. Right. Better decide who your god is. So Cleopatra, being the clever girl that she was, sent word of her suicide, although she didn't commit it, to Mark Antony, who promptly killed himself. By the way, when Cleopatra wanted to win the hearts of the people, oh God, you're going to love this one. Being influenced by the spirit of Rome as she was, she did something. She wanted everyone to know that she had born a special child. I don't know, she didn't speak Greek, but if she did, she might have called him a Theotokos. Because this special child was no ordinary son. He was the son of the god, Julius Caesar. So she was the mother of, you guessed it, God. She had reliefs painted all over Egypt, her image put on coins. You know what the image was? A beautiful woman holding a baby with a halo above her head. Mm -hmm. The inscription read, Mother of Ra, the God of Egypt. The Mother of God. I'm sure that these things are just coincidence. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those that humble themselves will be exalted. Vespasian was a Roman emperor from 69 to 70 AD. I know I skipped a chunk of history on purpose. He's the predecessor to Titus, who was the destroyer of Jerusalem. Hey, those of you that have closed your Bibles, I hope it's because you're just listening. But if you want to go, don't be ashamed about that. Stand up, walk out. If you came here to learn, though, then please learn. I want those who want to be taught. Vespasian is the predecessor to Titus. Titus has the distinction in all of history as destroying God's temple. Vespasian was greeted with titles as he first marched on Jerusalem. Giver of grace, Savior, the only ruler worthy of worship. That's an interesting thing to say in the first century A.D., isn't it? Seems that there's always been a world empire that wanted to exalt itself at the expense of those who humbled themselves. You ever thought about the word anti-Semitic? What a strange thing to say, anti-Semitic. Turn with me to Psalm 75. Anti-Semitic. 
75, verse 1. We give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks for Your name is near. Your what is near? If you want to say this in Hebrew, you would say Your Shem is near. In fact, when Jews pray, they often say, Blessed be the name. Blessed be Hashem. Anti-Shemitic. What are we really saying? It's God's name that we don't like. And why don't we like His name? Because it's a reminder that He's God. And we're not. So what does it mean to pick one people group on the planet and dislike them and we call that anti-Semitic? We don't like the people that bear His name. We give thanks to You, O God. We give thanks for Your name is near. Men, tell of Your wonderful deeds. You say, I choose the appointed time. It is I who judge uprightly as opposed to people. When the earth and all its people quake, it is I who uphold its pillars firm. To the arrogant I say, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns, your authority. Do not lift up your authority or horns against heaven. Do not speak with an outstretched or prideful neck. No one from the east or the west or the desert can exalt a man. But it is God who judges. He brings one down, He exalts another. The Psalms teach us that it is God's name that was meant to exalt a man. No man, not from the East, the Orient, or from the West, the Occidental cultures of the world, can exalt himself in God's eyes. It's only by being in proximity to his name. How interesting that there is one people group on the planet called Semitic people of the name, descendants of Shem. I think one of my favorite illustrations has got to be Augustus Caesar. But just for fun, to run you through brief modern history, because these things never happen anymore. In 1861, a German named Max Mueller theorized that the world had a common language. The only people group that he couldn't fit into that language was Hebrew. That's interesting. He began to theorize further from that common language that there must be a common ancestry. Of course, he was focused mostly on European descent. Then there was a Frenchman, De La Puge. He said, you know, if there was a common language and a common ancestry, there must be common genetic features to the most advanced people on the planet. He began studying the cranial structure of human beings. And he decided that among all the peoples on the earth, the Europeans had the most advanced cranial structure. And among all of the Europeans, the Nordic peoples were the most desired because their foreheads were the most enlarged. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, in 1933, there was a man who sought power. He wanted to be someone who is exalted, and he set out to exalt himself. But all super leaders need a super race of people. And to exalt themselves, they need to denigrate someone else. So a man by the name of Adolf Hitler in 1933 appointed a German named Gustav Kosina to research the history of the Nordic peoples. 
It was a complete fabrication. But they decided that the reason the Nordic peoples were so advanced based on their cranium size because they were originally Germans <laughs> who had simply migrated. You know what he called those original Germans that migrated? Aryans. A group of people that have never existed at any time on the planet, period. A completely mythical classification. But you see, by 1934, a man had named himself Fuhrer. A lot of ways to translate Fuhrer, but you know how a German translates it? Father of the people. Yeah. How would you say that in Latin? I wonder. I gotta just tell you, just for fun, while we're looking at cranial structures and common genetic links and all of those ridiculous things, 1936 was a bad year for Mr. Hitler and his super race. Yes, Because a black yeah, young right. man from Alabama <laughs> beat all of his super race yeah, by winning did. four Olympic gold medals. God will exalt the man that is humble. He will humble the man who exalts himself. We need to get back to Alexander. And we're surpassing an hour now. But if it's not an hour well spent, then you need to consider why you will watch a television program that is an hour away. Augustus Caesar was born in 27 BC. He reigned in 14 AD. He was considered to be the son of God because he was Caesar's successor. This is why Luke one thirty five says it was in the reign of Augustus Caesar that a census was taken and Mary and Joseph went where they went. He's placing you in history. I'm talking about someone who is born to the Semitic people groups, the people of the name, the target of all of the world empire's oppression and occupation. This is where he was born. And he's born during a time that a man is claiming to be the son of God. By the way, Augustus was also given a title. Father of the people. The day of his birth, the day of Augustus Caesar's birth was celebrated with 12 days. Something that the Romans have a Latin term for. You see if you can guess it. Adventus. What English word does that sound like? 12 days. The poets proclaimed peace and joy to the world because Augustus would certainly bring universal peace to the world as God's Son. The slogan, there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved was popularized during the reign of Augustus Caesar, the Son of God. He maintained his own priesthood in his own honor and offered the forgiveness of sins for a price. Hmm. There was no English word indulgence yet, but it was an indulgence. Listen to this description. This comes from page 82 of a book called Christ and the Caesars. From From this time, Rome was the center of the world. The emperor was the judge of the nations. From Britain to India, men listened to his words. After the successful issue to the Parthenian problem, the emperor concentrated his strength on domestic affairs. Laws affecting marriage and children were passed in order to call a halt to the serious dilution of the original Roman people and to establish a basis for a powerful development of the imperial race. In the 14 years of reconstruction after Actium, the Roman people were not slow to show their gratitude to the emperor. 
the priest accepted the conqueror of Cleopatra as one of the state gods and addressed him in traditional prayers as the founder of the new race of gods. The Senate gave him the wreath of oak leaves, the so-called citizen's crown, for saving citizens from mortal danger. As if that were not enough, the Roman Parliament gave him the divine title of Augustus, which raised him to a level of Zeus incarnate and the worshipful ruler of Rome. Not a mere human, but a man above mere human stature. In Asia Minor, Syria, Gaul, and Alexandria, temples were built and sacrifices and prayers were offered to the female goddess Roma alongside the god Augustus. And Virgil raised his voice again, celebrating Augustus' assumption of power as the fulfillment of his prophecy in the days of the Civil War. He goes on and on to proclaim him as the world's Savior. It was Augustus that empowered Herod to be able to kill the Jewish children. Mm -hmm. By the way, when Cleopatra in the first century B.C. called herself the mother of Ra, on the very same day she issued a decree ordering all Jews in Egypt to be killed. Isn't it interesting that at the same time men deify themselves, they attack the one group of people on the planet that God has said are not. Where? What are we talking about? I thought this was about rising and falling. I thought this was a practical message on humbling and exaltation in my life. Well, why did God exalt Israel? Why is He going to exalt Israel? Deuteronomy 7.7 Deuteronomy 15.6 Deuteronomy 26.19 None of them indicate a special aptitude. None of them indicate a special genetic lineage. None of them indicate divine qualities. Instead, they all indicate that God set His affection on them because they were the humblest of all peoples, the smallest and most insignificant. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. This is the meaning of the four four pieces of the statue that a rock fell on and crumbled from the feet all the way up to the top. If you can look through world history and see that the God of history, the supreme ruler of the universe, crushes every monarch (coughs) that considers himself divine and oppresses God's ways and God's people. What do you think He'll do to you when you do the very same thing in your actions? Mm-hmm. Say, I've never been anti-Semitic. You deny His name every time you don't do what His Word says. Mm-hmm. It's anti-Semitic on a whole other level. What do you think He'll do to you if you honor His name in every situation? Every world empire can seek your destruction. They can scatter you across the globe. They can hunt you. They can, like Haman, try to commit genocide against you. Yeah. And you cannot be stopped out because God is faithful to His work. Amen. Now, you are not Jews. And yet the principle is the same because it is a universal law of God that He exalts the humble. And He humbles those who exalt themselves. Moses left equality with Egyptian deity to go become like his brothers. He lowered himself all the way down into slavery. 
that God might use his life to liberate the slaves and bring them to a level of equality with God. Because God would put them in right standing with himself. Jesus left equality with God to go become like his brothers, even to the point of being killed on a cross, so that he could be raised, as Ephesians 2 says, higher than all the heavens, and seat you beside him. You can learn a lot about a religion by studying its leader. If this is how our king acts, how should we act? Maybe this is why Philippians 2 says your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. This would be our last scripture and I would like you to turn to it. It would be Luke 2. We've entered the Christmas season. You need to ignore for a minute the fact that Jesus was not born in December. You need to ignore the fact that nearly everything that will happen in this month is pagan idolatry. Focus on the fact that men of good intentions who humble themselves, God will exalt them way above all of that garbage. Listen to what was said of Jesus. This is Luke 2, starting in verse... 28. <laughs> Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. By the way, do you know who else said this? I mean, almost verbatim. Go read Genesis 46.30 sometimes. Jacob said it when he saw Joseph, the Savior of Egypt. It's almost as if there's a repeating pattern in Scripture trying to teach you something. Did Joseph exalt himself in his life? He didn't, did he? Did he finish his life exalted? It must be because he humbled himself. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Think about this for a moment. There is a Roman ruler of the world in an ivory palace with golden servants around him, dressed in white, proclaiming His holiness, calling Him the Father of the people with a priesthood that offered the remission of your sins. But this old man in a Jewish temple looks at the son of a carpenter and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. God will take the humblest of all things and exalt it above the height of all things. But everyone who exalts themselves and appoints titles to themselves and chooses the tree of knowledge of good and evil for themselves will be humble. Most people would not know who Augustus Caesar was. And everyone on the planet knows who Yeshua is. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. What audacity this Jewish prophet had to say that this no account 
Hmm. No birthright. No special genetics. No special aptitude. Baby. Born to Jewish commoners. Was going to illuminate the world. And he said it during a time a man claimed all of those things for himself and had the might of the Roman legions to enforce it. So much so, so entrenched and so affected the world system that this December, we will still carry out all of the practices he instituted. And the dollar bills in your pockets carry his language on it still. And the governmental structure of our society, as much as Augustus set it up in his day, we're so right. And light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to them, his mother Mary, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Friends, Jesus is a sign. He will cause you to rise or He will cause you to fall. And His Word is a sword that didn't just pierce Mary's heart. If it haven't, hasn't preached, pierced yours after an hour and 15 minutes of preaching, I don't have anything left to say. You need to move to a place that is more like the tax collector. Yeah. You need to move to a place that says, Lord, I'm willing to rethink every detail of my life. Yeah. Leave no stone. That's right. Lord, I'm willing to do anything that you would tell me to do. And it not be a lie when you say it. That's right. We need to do that. I will address next Sunday when we have our Christmas play how you handle the disparity between snow and sand, between our traditional Christmas setting and the reality of the sand of the Judean wilderness. I want to tell you that our faith is big enough to claim whatever we want and worship our God in whatever way we want. But you might need to consider that God wants to draw a distinction in your life from pagan idolatry in the world around us. I'll always leave those decisions to you. But this is something to think about. All you got from this message is whether you do or don't have a Christmas tree, you have so sore in this. Stand to your feet. When we pray, we're going to pray to the God identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob people of the name, the yeah. Samaritan. We're going to appeal to him by way of our inclusion in Yeshua, Amen. the Messiah. We were a people who were far from God. His blood has brought us 
It costs his life to do that, and it costs your life daily to continue in it. If there ever was such a thing as a super race, it would definitely be the children of God. Mm-hmm. But if we don't act like him, how would anyone know? That's right. Holy Father, we honor you. We thank you that the promises that you have given the patriarchs are firm. We thank you, Lord God, that though we were once far away, your Messiah, Yeshua, has brought us near. We reject the idea that we would be a God to ourselves. We reject anyone's influence in our life as a pagan deity. And we relate to you wholly through Yeshua's name, through the name of Jesus and His work. And Lord, we commit to pattern our lives after Your example. We commit to give our lives wherever necessary for You. Lord, in this way, we will honor You during a month of pagan revelry. And we will love You with all of our heart and celebrate your birth and your goodness while the world takes their counterfeits. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Amen. Amen. Last note, saints. Next Sunday our little ones are going to be singing. There's going to be a manger built in here. Please, please, show up 15 minutes early. If you need to lie to yourself by changing your clock, do it. We don't want to steal from the little ones. We, we want them to have their moment. And this will be a word that is shared probably under 30 minutes that is suitable for any guest you can think of and will present the truth of the gospel in a way that melts most people's hearts because it will relate to the children. So let's have a packed house and let's get here early. Amen? Amen. Hey, uh, Ephesians 5 is Monday night. Love God.